0: Well, this weekend we are concluding our series on the Ten Commandments. We've been doing this for many months now, not concluding, but preaching through the Ten Commandments. And uh, I received a note this week from a dear sister in our church, and she wrote an email to me, and it said this. Hi. It's a good way to start an email. Thanks for your series on the Ten Commandments. God used you to step on my toes a time or two, but to really trounce all over me at one time. I'm so glad that he... And I hope that as we have been studying that really the foundational statement of ethical morality is given to us by God himself, that all of us have felt that that blessed sting of conviction and of direction ethically into what it means to live a life that is pleasing to God and for the law of God to do its good work. And you might remember that when we started studying this law, that we talked about the three purposes of the law of God. And I said that before the study, and so you probably were like, yeah, 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 okay, that's fine. Well, here we are now on the other end of spending all of this time in the Ten Commandments, and I think that maybe reiterating these might help us to remember what is the purpose of these commands in the first place. And so to remind us, the law of God serves as a map, it serves as a muzzle, And it serves as a mirror. Now, in what way is it a map? Well, maps show us where to go, right? When you're lost, what do you do? You pull out the map and you you say, okay, well, where are we? And where do we want to go? And how do we get there? Or today, actually, the young people are going, we don't pull out maps. What are you talking about? (laughs) Right? Or we get on our smartphone and we tap on the maps app and on the screen comes a little blue dot that is blinking, right? And the little blue dot, that's where you are. And you, you put an address in and down comes the pin and it says, this is where you wanna go. And then it'll chart two or different, three different ways to get there. But the idea is that you have to know where you are and you have to know where you are going if you're ever going to get there. And maps serve that purpose and function for us as does the law of God. It gives us a kind of divine heavenly perspective on where we are morally and ethically and spiritually. It also tells us where we want to go. And is an immense help to us. And I hope that after studying the Ten Commands and all of these categories, that we have a clearer picture, a little sharper focus on what it, like, what it looks like to live a life in obedience to God. And a life that pleases him morally, ethically, and spiritually. So it is a map. Secondly, it is a muzzle. And what do we use muzzles for? We put them on animals with sharp teeth that scare us. And we put them on them because we don't want them to do what naturally would come to them. And a muzzle is a kind of restraint, right? Right? And the law of God is that for us also. It acts as a kind of moral and ethical restraint to keep us from being as unrighteous, as wicked, as we, our sin nature would otherwise take us to. And so the muzzle, it muzzles us. It, it keeps us from doing what we naturally want to do as sinners. And of course, society needs moral and ethical laws. What happens in a society or a culture where... They throw off restraints. They throw off laws. It, it leads either to moral chaos or to tyranny. And in both cases, there's massive injustice and the strong dominate the weak. And so we live in a society today that... Uh, ...says that we are uh, governed by the laws of the land, right? And we have this picture of uh, the Supreme Court, the, you know, the woman with the blindfold and the scales of justice that she holds up. And we talk about how, you know, the laws are so important. And this, of course, is part of the schizophrenia of the world that we live in here in America... ...where simultaneously we have the woman with the scales and we're saying, hey, we believe that laws are really important... But in the schools and in the universities and in much of pop culture, the argument is what? That there are no transcendent laws. There there is no basis for saying that something is right and wrong. These situational ethics of the world around us. And the Bible comes along and says, these laws are not suggestions. These laws are not uh, uh, culturally defined. Rather, they are grounded in the character of a transcendent God who does not change. And so we looked into the law of God, and what do we see week after week? That yes, it says you shall not murder, and you shouldn't steal, and you you should uh, not take the Lord's name in vain. But behind that command is the character of God. So that it is always wrong to lie because God is a truth speaker. And it is always wrong to take the life of an image bearer because they bear the image of God and that life is precious and sacred. And it's always wrong to bow down to an idol or love anything more than God because God is the supremely worthy, glorious one. That will always be true. It doesn't matter where you live, what era, what time. 10,000 years from now, if the Lord tarries, it will still be true because the character of God does not change. I think this is part of the reason that our culture really despises the Ten Commandments and is trying to get rid of it everywhere that they can is because it is a kind of muzzle and it restrains us from doing what we want to do naturally as sinners. I saw a fascinating video exchange. I thought about playing the video, decided I didn't have time. Uh, but the, you can look online if you'd like. There's a fascinating interchange uh, between Robbie Zacharias. Many of you probably know him. He's a Christian writer, defender of the faith. And he goes around to uh, universities, Harvard, Princeton, Ohio State, whatever, and he does these like Q&A times where the students can ask him anything that they want. So he kind of takes on all comers sort of in this way, which gets the college students all, oh, we're going to take this guy down. And so uh, it was one of these events and there was this interchange, exchange between Robbie Zacharias and this college student who takes to the mic and he says, Mr. Zacharias, what are you so afraid of? I mean, you're all against situational ethics, but seriously, really? Are you afraid that if, if, if we allow people to define right and wrong in the manner that they think is best, that people are going to do all kinds of horrible and terrible things? I mean, really? Really? And uh, Ravi gets up and he goes in an Indian accent. He goes, Can I ask you a question? He says, do you lock your doors at night? And everybody started laughing, you know, because he told it better than I apparently just did. (laughs) Because the guy goes, "Uh, yeah, I do. Well, why do you lock your doors at night if not being afraid that somebody is going to define ethics and morality in your home (laughs) a little differently than you do? And that is exactly the, uh, uh, the issue. A muzzle. And finally, it is a mirror. It is a mirror in that the law of God shows us the depth of our sin. It shows us how much we need a Savior. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 13. He says, Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, In order that sin might be, the good, by the way, is the law. Maybe you can say it this way. It was sin producing death in me through what is through the law. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now that's when you got to kind of think about. But let me tell you what he's saying there. He's saying that the law itself shows me that what I am doing and who I am is a sinner. Sinner. If I don't have the law, I, I, I may be a sinner, but I don't realize it. So that, for example, if, you are, if, you're, if you're somewhere where you've never been before and you're standing there and you're admiring some pretty view or something and the cop comes up and says, I'm taking you to jail, you can say, well, what for? He says, you're trespassing. Don't you see the sign right here? And you go, I didn't... Right? And in that moment, what happens? The law shows you that what you are doing is wrong. And now increases the guilt and helps me to, to realize how guilty I am. And I don't know if that's a good illustration or not, but it, it, it does this. It, it, the law of God shows sinners how far short we are to the measure of righteousness that God, that God is and that God puts out for all that will be in relationship with him. I mean, if, we've always studied 10 of the laws. You can keep reading throughout Deuteronomy and Leviticus etc and realize each one of those highlighting something that we are failing at something that we are not obeying like a mirror a mirror shows us what we really look like don't you hate it if you never looked in a mirror you could assume I have movie star good looks right (laughs) But finish the sentence for me. A mirror never... A mirror never lies. We look in the mirror and, it, you know, it's disappointing. You know, you think, I must look better than this. And then there I am. And yet that mirror does what? It calls us to do something about it. And so we take care of our hair and we do a little of this and that. Trying to improve ourselves. That's what mirrors do. And the law of God does the same it shows us who we are through from the perspective of god it shows and highlights the depth of our sin and in the end it causes us to realize that we are under the judgment of god that we are law breakers and causes us to want to do something about it And now here the law is doing its good work because when I look around to try to see what can I do about my guilt before a holy God, what do I need? I need righteousness. And where am I going to get this righteousness from? And into that comes Jesus who fulfilled the law perfectly, died on the cross in obedience, and who bore the guilt of our sins against that very law. And the gospel says that all who believe in him, the very righteousness of the Son of God is transferred to our moral account. He takes our unrighteousness, we gain his righteousness, and we stand before a holy God as holy as the Son is. And that's really good news for people that look in the mirror and realize, I need salvation. And this is how the law is so good and so helpful and my dear friends, I don't want anybody to have gone through this whole series and that what you got from it is that I, need, I really need to try harder, I need to do better. I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better. That's the bottom line of my study of the Ten Commandments. If that's what you've gotten, you have missed the point. That is legalism. That is self-righteousness. The law guides us after we are saved, but it condemns us before we are saved. And from that position of guilt, I look to Christ and his cross. And now the whole thing becomes wonderful and beautiful to me. Do you see how the law is good? Paul wrote that. The law is good if you use it properly, he says. And that is the proper use of the law for it to draw our hearts in faith to the law fulfiller, Jesus himself. Now, I know my flock, and I'm thinking that some of you are a little disturbed right now because you're thinking to yourself, there's 10 of those commands. Great series, Pastor Steve. Thank you so much. Mm, that was a blessing. But I can't remember my grocery list, much less <laughs> 10 commands. Can, can you help me a little bit? Because, you know, like, can you can you synthesize this down a little bit or maybe just, Pick out one or two that maybe if I really kept those in my mind, that, that I can't remember ten. How about just, Pastor Steve, how about just one? Can you just give us one that we can just put on the fridge or really focus on as being the most important command? Well, in fact, there is just one you need to know. There is just one that if you just do this one, You don't need the Ten Commands. You didn't need this whole series if you do this one command. And that's the one thing I want to talk with you about to conclude here. We've done the Ten Commands. Let's talk about the Great Command. And our passage is Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. I'm going to begin reading in verse 34 to set the uh, table here. It says this. But when the Pharisees, okay, these would have been Jesus' opponents, heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, another group of Jesus' opponents, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I we'll stop there because I want to talk a little bit about context here. A little history helps understand what's going on. We know that in first century Judaism that the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the religious types would gather together, and they would have these endless debates about certain aspects of the law. And they would uh, chew on it, talk about it, chew on it, talk about it. And if you look at Matthew 22, you'll see that Uh, these are basically a series of questions, ending actually with one that Jesus asked them, that represent some of these thorny questions that they could never come up with an answer to. Now you might say, well, isn't that nice that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would go to Jesus seeking information? They were not seeking information at all. In fact, verse 15 says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So what are they doing? They're trying to entrap him. They're trying to get him to say something that they could go, aha, now we've got him. So you see the heart motive behind it. Well, one of the hotly debated questions of the day was which commands were more important and which commands were less important. Which command is the most important was like the big hotly debated question. And the uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had broken down the Old Testament law. They'd identified 613 specific commands that were laid out in the law. And so they would debate which one of the 613 was like the really, really important one. They never came up with the answer. So they decide to take this sort of theological Rubik's Cube to Jesus and to test him and to see what he has to say about it. And so, teacher... What is the most important commandment? Hmm? Sounds innocent, but we know what's going on here. Jesus does not back down from the challenge. And here is his reply, verse 37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I love that because they didn't say, well, and what's the second most important commandment? He goes, he kind of doubles down on him. And oh, by the way, if you're wondering what the second one, I'll tell you that one too. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. What Jesus does here is he reaches back into the Old Testament and he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, this would have been a passage these guys knew from childhood because every good Jew that was raised in Judaism they knew what was known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Celebrating the monotheism of Judaism, the monoism of the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This in the context, of course. Where the other religions of the world, they had a pantheon of gods. And the Greeks and the Romans as well had a pantheon of gods. But Judaism is a one God religion. There is only one God. And so Jesus says, you had the right passage, but not the right verse. The monotheism of God, of course, is critically important. But loving that one God is essential. And that is what Jesus now focuses on. And we ask the question, what does it mean to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind? And you see in the command how the structure breaks it down that way. Here's the command, love the Lord your God. But then you have these categories of love, He begins with heart. Okay, By heart, what is he talking about? He's not talking about that sort of thing that's beating in my chest right now. It's not the organ of my heart. But rather, the Bible uses heart to describe the inner man. Maybe the real me. It's where my affections are. It's where my desires are. On that level, I am to love God. Soul. What is soul? This is the spiritual dimension of our personhood. This is where we worship. This is where we contemplate spiritual realities. And on that level, we are to love God. And finally, mind. This is not our brain, but it is our thinking. This is our attitudes, maybe our motivations, our priorities. And I want you to see that this description, which is a fairly summary description of all of the immaterial aspects of what it means to be a human being, that he adds in there for emphasis what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. In other words, by adding all to all of this, it is speaking of the totality of this love. In others, we can't, don't, don't categorize this. There are some people that they kind of pride themselves almost in saying, you know, I'm more of a thinking Christian. I love God with my mind. I love theology. I love big words. And I very stoically approach my relationship with God. I'm a thinking Christian. And all you feeling Christians are weird. and then you have people of course that you know i'm more of a feeling christian i i have deep feelings for god and they flow out all the time i love god i love god i don't really think about him though i feel god i remember some years ago one service for whatever reason, we had a visitor. And I remember he sat right over here where all the highly suspicious people sit. (laughs) And uh, I I was sitting over here somewhere and I remember looking over and this guy during the worship time was ecstatically dancing. I mean, just imagine the most sort of ecstatic dancing. I won't demonstrate, but he's over here. He is just going crazy. I mean, he is just joyously, rapturously worshiping God. Well then I get up to preach and I'm preaching and I happen to look over to him while I'm preaching he is fast asleep in the front <laughs> row. I think he's more of a he's more of a heart Christian than a mind Christian. But the point here is is that you can't he, he doesn't give these so that we can compartmentalize them. He is giving them so that we don't do that. He is doing that to say that, that to love God means that I am doing this with all that I am, with everything that I can, to the extent that I can. I love God. Richard Baxter Old Puritan pastor wrote it this way, does Christ now have the highest room in your life and love so that you cannot, though you cannot love him as much as you wish, yet nothing else is loved as much? Ask yourself that question. Do you ever find yourself praying, God, I love you, but even as you say that to feel guilty, that's how I feel, because I know that my love is weak and is fickle and not what it ought to be and so sometimes i'll pray god i love you but not as i should help me to love you more i think this is beautifully written henry Skugel writes this about what the love of god is the love of god is a delightful and affectionate sense of the divine perfections which makes the soul resign and sacrifice itself wholly unto him Desiring above all things to please him, and delighting in nothing so much as in fellowship and communion with him, and being ready to do or to suffer anything for his sake or at his pleasure. That is a beautiful description of the love of God. So, is loving God a feeling? Is it a doing? Is it a duty? Is it a delight? Love has dimensions of all of those categories as anybody who's ever loved anybody realizes. Love has great affections. Love has great responsibilities. Love has great duties and great desires. And I want us to realize that this greatest command is a command to fail to love God in this way is just like breaking the sixth commandment or the eighth commandment and for sure is breaking of the first commandment this is not just a hey aspire to this it is a command of god it is the duty of man to love his creator but loving god is also our greatest privilege and therefore can be our greatest delight And so let's talk about that. Like, why is this the greatest command? Why doesn't he pick some other of the 613? Why is this one the big one? And I go back to the purposes of the law. Loving God is the greatest map, and loving God is the clearest mirror. And with these, we conclude our Ten Commandments series. How is it the greatest map? Well, the whole law of God is a map for us, and, and we've seen in this series that that even the Ten Commandments are really about the heart. I mean, all of them, nine of the ten actually, nine of the ten are all have sort of outward expressions, right? So we know what adultery is, we know what murder is, uh, we know what lying is. But what have we seen week after week after week? That while the law is addressing a certain outward dimension, from the beginning, the intent was always the heart. And we see that in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes these commands and he says, you make all kinds of outward rules about these things, but what God actually cares about is the condition of your heart. The law is about the heart. And sinners, our hearts are what? Desperately wicked. Who can know it? What do sinners with desperately wicked hearts need? We need a new heart. So that that heart can love God with all itself. To the full extent that it can. And we have to realize that when God here says, Love me. It is the greatest map. It is a map to joy. It is a map to happiness. It is a map to our greatest delight. It is the pinnacle experience of the human experience That's never repeat one word twice in a sentence but I just did it. It is the pinnacle of the human experience to love and know its creator. Psalm 1611 In thy presence is fullness of joy and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Hebrews 12, it was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross and despised his shame and is set down now at the right hand of the throne of God. When God tells us to love him and commands us to love him, it is his grace to us, friends. Why? Because he knows our hearts. He knows how we're wired. He knows that he made us so that nothing else satisfies Nothing else delights. Nothing else gives a kind of enduring joy and gladness like knowing God through his son Jesus and loving him. God's command leads us to joy because God's command leads us to him. And you can write that one down. God's command leads to joy because God's command leads us to Him. Skugel also writes this, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. I want to say that one again too. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Think about it. What does it tell us about a man whose whole life is oriented around his stamp collection. Is that a statement about stamps, or is that a statement about him? Or what do you think about when some rich woman dies and she leaves her entire estate to her dog? Does that say something about the dog? Or does that say something about her? Or what do you think about the guy that's buried with his Harley? Does that say something about Harley? Maybe a little but it says a lot about him. The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. And so there are loves that we admire. Here, Friday, 70th anniversary of D-Day. Those Marines that went up Omaha and Juneau and the reenactments and all the honoring. Why did they do it? Love for the band of brothers. No doubt, but also love for country. We honor that, and rightly so. That is an admirable love. Or we look at a, a a spouse or a child, a family member, and we see familial love, and we admire that, and we honor that, and we should. But the greatest love in this world, the greatest object that our hearts can, can express that kind of gladness and delight in, is not the dog, it's not the Harley, it's not even our country. The greatest love is God. And when God says, love me, it is his love to give the command. Do you see? Why? Because now I am on a path like a map to joy. Because it's a path to him. So what are you loving, friend? What are you loving? What are you living for? What does that say? Not about the cubs or the bears or your career or your yard. It doesn't say anything about those things. But it does say something about you. And what you are settling for. And what you are giving up. When God steps in and says, know me through my son, I am joy. As C.S. Lewis wrote, he says, we're like children playing in the mud, making little castles in the mud going, look at my castle, look at my castle. It's so amazing. When God is offering us a vacation at the sea, he says, we are far too easily pleased. And you look at our world and our culture and sadly too often in the church. People who hear the command of God, the path to joy, and settle for something that our souls were never made to have joy or gladness in ultimately. We ignore the one and we settle for the less. What if God loved us enough to command what he knows would be our greatest joy? What if that's what's going on here? You know, our daughter turned one, Friday. I mentioned that already. She has a very limited vocabulary at this point. Although she surprised us uh, recently with turtle out of the blue. So what do you say to that? It's a limited vocabulary, though. One word that she has uh, come to understand is no. Right? Right? She reaches for the TV to pull it down. No. She reaches for something on the coffee table to pull it across. No. She looks. And she gets no really, really well. She understands don't do this. Don't do that. Now, we tell her we love her all the time. And we kiss her. We Oh, we love you. We love you. I have no idea how much of that she understands at this point. But she gets no. And often the Ten Commandments and all the other ones can feel to us like God is saying no. Don't do this. Don't do that. And behind that no is love. And we can miss that, can't we? Like my daughter misses it probably right now. How much we love her. And all of our no's are because we do. And we want for her the life of gladness and happiness. Behind God's no is God's love. So when God says, Don't bow to an idol, don't love anything more than me, don't take my image, don't misuse my name, don't covet, don't live materially. We're like, oh, why? Because he loves us. And he knows our hearts. And by the way, behind God's yes is God's love as well. And that's what's really going on in the Great Command. He's not telling us not to do something, he's telling us to do something. And that something is the one thing that he knows. Is our greatest delight. Is it a duty? For sure. But it is and can be our greatest delight because God is the only worthy object of my heart and the only worthy object of my soul and the only worthy object of my mind because God made all of these for him. For him. So ask yourself this morning, if you're If the measure of your soul is the object of its love, who or what truly has your heart this morning? Who or what are you living for? And are you on the path to maximum joy? It's the greatest command because it's the greatest map. It is also the greatest command, secondly, because it is the greatest and clearest mirror you know every one of these commands it's sort of been a depressing series in this way come to church and learn what a failure you are right one more category to realize i'm a loser and that's kind of how it has felt right because first commandment fail second commandment fail third commandment fail five six seven eight nine ten fail 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 but the greatest command shows our epic fail This is the big one. How can we possibly love God all the time with everything that we have? I mean, is that really realistic? Seriously? I mean, God, how can you tell me to do that? That hardly seems fair. And what we find this command doing is putting before us a life lived for ultimate joy and ultimate love. But he commands it And he knows that we cannot do it on our own. My dear friend, if you are here and you hear that command and you walk out of here going, I can't do that. Yes, you can't. (laughs) What would you think of that sentence? (laughs) And yet we look in the Bible and we come to find out that the answer on my own is I can't do that. I can't do that. And into this now the Bible says, 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. How does this work? We love him because he first loved us loved us. Our love, the very love that he is commanding is a responsive love. It is a reflecting love. God initiates, God elects, God gives the love, right? He gives the love to us through his son Jesus and by the spirit and the gospel in the miracle of regeneration. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. That's what it means to respond to the gospel. I have come to see and know who God is through his son, the love of God. That he loved the world, right? And all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the love of God to me. I receive it. I embrace it. God gives me a new heart. Places his own love in my heart. And now as a Christian, I can love God in a kind of reflective way with a love that he has granted to me in the first place. And the gospel is God's offer of love. We do not do this naturally. If you walk out of here and you say, I'm going to do that apart from a relationship with God through his son, you won't do it to the car. We can't do this on our own. But my dear friends, this is part of God's gift of salvation to us. Is he, he puts us on a map to joy. And he puts a mirror in front of us to help us see who we are. And to see who He is. And for that to draw us in faith and love to Himself. And over time for that love to grow. As I come more and more to realize just how much He loves me. And what He has done for me in His Son. And in His cross. And in the ongoing work of the kingdom of God through the church. And the proclamation of the gospel. And the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And on and on it goes. The love of God continues to be a reality in the life of the Christian, which engenders, or it ought to, an increasing love for Him in response. All right, I'm going to put something on the screen right now, and I'm warning you right now: this is going to like, this is going to be too much. Okay, go ahead and put. I, I warned you. Go ahead and put it up. You were warned, right? (laughs) This was Friday. And uh, she had an explosion of something out of the top of her head there. Not sure what's going on. And uh, this was her first cake. And to be honest, Mommy and Daddy had a little fun uh, with the frosting on her face. Just being honest with that. But, um, you know, this little girl has truly changed my life. I mean, I love her so much. There is such a love that it's apparent you feel. And is it a duty? Yes. Is it a delight? Yes. Both. Does she know how much we love her? I would like to think that she does. Maybe just a little bit. But what are we hoping happens in her life over the years? As she matures and as she grows in her understanding of how much her parents love her. For that love to be precious to her and to be a joy to her. And for that love to be reciprocated back to us. That's love. That's freedom. That's joy. And these are God's ultimate purposes for us in His commands. He doesn't do them because He hates us. He does them because He loves us. He does them to set us free. Free to what? Free to live a life. Free to get out of the bondage of sin. Free to be free, to be free in Christ. And to live a life now of ethical and moral, spiritual love. Whereas Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And to do that in the grace that God provides. And to do that in the strength that God provides. And to do that truly with all my heart and all my soul and with all my mind. And may that be the legacy of this series in this church. Okay? Not legalism, not try harder, do better, but love for God. Love for God that elicits a life lived in the direction of his will, his purpose, and his pleasure. And that's the Ten Commandments. Amen. Would you stand together for prayer with me?